It's a widely recognized fact that it's inefficient and usually ineffective to use something for a purpose it was never intended to serve. Now, you can drink your soup with a uh, fork if you want. You can eat your peas on a knife, usually buttering it first to keep them on. And you can cut your meat with a spoon if you want, but I don't know who wants to. Obviously, those are not the purposes for which those utensils were designed. You can uh, hunt rabbits with a fishing pole and a hook. You can shoot fish with a rifle. You can bring down ducks with a harpoon if you wish. But that's not the way I want to go hunting or fishing. You see, things have a purpose. They are designed to meet that purpose. Of course, when you use something for a purpose other than that for which it was intended, you can also insult people by doing that. Someone gives you a fine piece of China, perhaps Noritake, pre-World War II, and you put it on the floor and feed your cat out of it. That can insult the giver. And it can be extremely dangerous for a pilot, for example, to use the instrument panel for some other purpose than to warn him against the approaching mountains up ahead. Perhaps he becomes fascinated with the light or comparing the instrument panel with that in some other cockpit that he is flied, uh, flying uh, as well. But you see, everybody seems to recognize this principle except many preachers. <clears throat> many preachers are willing to use the scriptures, any passage of scripture, any preaching portion, for whatever purpose they care to use it for. Instead of designing the scriptures for the purpose that they have in view, as the Holy Spirit did, these preachers seem to think they have the right to design and use passages of scripture for whatever purpose they wish. I'd like to give you an example of this. Over in the 15th chapter of Luke, there is a chapter that you're all very familiar with. In Luke 15, usually this chapter is titled, The Lost and Found Chapter. You remember what is taught in that chapter, how there was a lost sheep, the shepherd went after that hundredth sheep, sought him out, found him and brought him back. And then all the shepherds got together and they rejoiced over the sheep that was found. There's a lost coin. And the woman who lost her dowry coin swept all around her filthy floor and finally found it. And then the Greek says that she gathered all her female friends together and they had a hen party. And then uh, you had the lost son. The father is scanning the horizon daily, looking for his son to return. One day he sees him afar off and he runs and greets him and falls upon his neck and kisses him and then he throws quite a 
party for him, killing the fatted calf. All that was designed to teach something. It had a purpose. It was intended by the Holy Spirit to teach us what we needed to know under a certain circumstance. The story is, is not complete, however. There is the fact of the elder brother who comes into the picture at that point, who isn't happy with that gala affair where his brother is greeted and honored. In fact, he won't even call him his brother. He says, your son who wasted all your goods. And on he goes, jealous of the son and bitter over the fact that the father is greeting him again. Now, often that passage, as I said, is, is looked at, that whole 15th chapter, is looked at as a great evangelistic passage from which to preach the gospel. Is the gospel there? Why, of course it is. And if you don't preach the gospel, along with whatever else you're preaching from that chapter, you misunderstand it. But the gospel is not the prime concern of that chapter. And when you begin to break it into three gospel messages or more, you're really misusing the passage. If you look at the beginning of that chapter, you see the context in which it occurs. The tax collectors, we read, and sinners were coming near to listen to him, that is, to listen to the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we read in verse 2, but the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this person welcomes sinners and eats with them. That's the background against which this parable is taught. And then in the third verse we read, so he told them this parable, not these three parables to begin with, but this parable. It is a single parable that occurs in this chapter. It's a parable in which three instances that are parallel are related by our Lord. Shepherds who find their lost sheep Rejoice over that fact. They get together and they are delighted to tell each other how wonderful this is. They rejoice, it says. The women who find their lost coin get together and they rejoice, it says. And a father whose son is found after being lost for so many years rejoices over the fact that he has returned home repentant. But then that three-part parable has a kicker at the end. It's the elder brother who's out of sync. Certainly, as you hear about the shepherd, everybody says, yes, that's what shepherds do, and they're nodding, yes. Then you hear about the women, and everybody is nodding, yes. They rejoice over that found coin. And then everybody is saying, yes, that's what fathers do. But suddenly, there is an elder brother who says, no, no. And that comes in kind of a, as a jarring element in this parable at the end. That kicker at the end ought to awaken people to the fact that these Pharisees and these scribes and these teachers were out of sync with reality and with their Lord in particular. But it's not really, you see, the lost and found chapter. That's not the emphasis of the chapter at all. It's the lost and sought for and refound and rejoiced over chapter. 
That's the key. Our Lord Jesus was out there seeking the lost. He was out there eating with sinners and publicans. And the Pharisees didn't like that. But he cared about them, and he went out there to win them to himself. And then he and the angels in heaven, it says, rejoiced over those who were found, those who believed, those who trusted in him as Savior. And that is the key to this passage, that these Pharisees, these publicans, ought to be rejoicing. They ought not to be grumbling over the fact that the Lord is out there seeking the lost, but rejoicing over his ministry. They were out of sync, you see, just like the elder brother. Now, there is a tremendous amount of power in that passage when you understand it and use it for the purpose for which it was given. Let's suppose that you have a new church building or one that has been refinished. All the pews have been... Uh, uh, sanded down and they've been shellacked again and the floor is really shiny, it's beautiful. And you're rejoicing over this nice building that you're living in as you meet together for worship. One morning, a group of motorcyclists, 12 let's say, come scraping down the middle aisle with their boots which have cleats on the bottom scratching up your newly gleaming floors. These men uh, each have belts about that wide with metal knobs protruding, hair uh, dripping down over the pews behind them after they sit down, lice running up and down that hair. And because of those lice, they do a lot of squirming while they're sitting in the pews, and these belts scratch up your new pews that have just been varnished afresh. And people in the congregation begin to complain. And you hear them grumbling on the other side of the tracks and our church like this. Now you preach that message, you see. Most of you wouldn't have the courage or the guts to preach it because it has so much power under those circumstances that it really ought to reach the hearts of men and women. You see, when you use a passage for the purpose it was intended to teach, then it has power and effect. And that's what I'm after during this series of lectures, trying to say something about this idea of preaching with purpose. I was so happy when I was asked to talk about that subject because it's a concern of mine. I think that purpose is the neglected factor in preaching. Back before the days of uh, personal computers, and I go back before those days, as a matter of fact, I go back before the days of popular television, so you know how old I'm getting to be. But uh, back before the days of personal computers, I had no random selection methodology to use, so I'd go into the stacks of Westminster Seminary and close my eyes spin around two or three times in each direction so as to disorient myself and reach up into the stacks and pull down a volume and reach over here and pull another one and back here, another one, and over here a third or fourth. And then I'd carry them to a table and open them up at random and then study the messages. 
So I would have sermons from liberals, conservatives, from all sorts of various religious backgrounds and so on in every period in time. And over a, a long period, I studied a variety of sermons that way. And one of the things that smacked me in the face as I began to study those was the fact that men were using passages of Scripture for their own purposes, not for the purposes for which those passages were intended. And when the Holy Spirit has an intention in mind, when he designs a passage to achieve a certain end, when he has certain goals that he has in giving those passages of Scripture, then when they are used for those purposes, they have force and power, as I showed you. But when they are not, they lack much. They become inefficient and ineffective. And that's one of the reasons why preaching today is ineffective and inefficient. I'm not saying that all preaching is poor in that regard. When I did my master's work under Blackwood, Andrew Blackwood, I studied the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And one of the things that struck me about those sermons, reading the entire Metropolitan Tabernacle and series and, re and studying those messages, was that Spurgeon, unlike most people in preaching that I had studied prior to him, at least 50% or more of the time used the passage for the purpose for which it was designed. That was a high percentage by comparison to others. The other 50% other of Spurgeon's sermons were good sermons from the wrong passage. <clears throat> but you see, that is a problem today in the church. And I want to talk a little bit about how we got that way in giving you a very his, uh, sketchy history of preaching here in the next five minutes. Preaching, of course, began with the apostles. Preaching began after the Lord had risen uh, in his church with men who preached inspired messages. Uh, I don't know whether you've ever thought about it or not, but those prophecies of the Lord Jesus that when you are brought before men and when you have to give a defense of your faith and when you have to present Christ, those promises were that you are not to prepare beforehand because the Holy Spirit in that hour will give you the words to speak and will teach you how to say it. That's an amazing thing. We don't have that promise. Uh, we do have to prepare beforehand, and I hope that all of you do prepare adequately. And by the way, just as a footnote, while you're here in seminary, this is the time to start learning proper methods of preparation. Don't skimp on the sermons that you preach here. Don't just get by uh, putting all your interest in something else. Uh, I want to tell you, if you start bad habits, you'll probably continue them. If you start good habits, the same is probably true. So learn to prepare properly while you're here. But those men did not have to prepare. The Lord gave them the words in that hour. And in, on the day of Pentecost, for example, uh, in Acts 2, where we read about the preaching of Peter, it says he spoke out, and there's a very peculiar word there used in verse 4, it's apothengomai. It's used again in verse 14 and once more in the book of Acts of the Apostle Paul later on. But that word means to speak out revelatory words with confidence and power. And that was what happened. And the book of Acts, incidentally, 
is a great place to study preaching, what it is that the Holy Spirit's concerned about in preaching, because these were sermons inspired by him. Sometimes it strikes me that uh, missionaries who prepare for the mission field don't take preaching very seriously. I once had a student say to me, I was trained to go onto the foreign mission field, so I had no courses in preaching. That is a tragedy, it seems. You know, if you look at the book of Acts and spread out Acts from chapter 1 to chapter 28, what you have is a series of sermons and speeches strung together by a narrative of how the gospel moved from Jerusalem to Rome. And the answer to that question, how did it move, is it moved on preaching. The book of Acts is a book of preaching. And if we're talking missions, we ought to be talking preaching in a very prominent way. And so we had the apostolic preachers who preached well. But the problem soon occurred that people did not examine the preaching that we find in Acts. They went off on their own in the history of preaching. They brought in Greek and Roman rhetoric, not all of which is bad. Some of it was helpful, but it was not an examination of how the apostles did it, how the Holy Spirit inspired them to go out preaching the word. And so we began to get various ideas brought into the church. The earliest extant sermon that we have beyond the apostles themselves is Second Clement. And if you compare it to anything in the book of Acts, you can see the disjunction between the two. What uh, Second Clement gives us is a very hodgepodge of much truth, but not much form, not much uh, purpose involved in it. And from there on, the history of preaching goes downward. We get some input from Chrysostom over in Antioch in Syria that was pretty good because it was based on historical, grammatical exegesis of the scriptures. But soon that was covered over by Antiochian views, where allegory became very much the prominent and dominant idea of the day. Origen didn't invent uh, allegory. He, he propagated it. Allegory began with the pagan Greeks, who as they looked at Hesiod and Homer, their religious books, and found that the gods were running around committing crimes and adultery and deceiving one another and doing various things that gods ought not to do, uh, they began to say, well, we can't accept this as literal. So they began to allegorize those passages in order to do away with the embarrassment that was found in Homer and Hesiod. Pretty soon, Philo in Alexandria, who was an Old Testament scholar, uh, also had some problem with some of the passages in the Old Testament. And so he adopted this Greek method of dealing with difficulties. And he applied it to the Old Testament. And so it became a dominant force in Alexandria. Then, of course, uh, Clement of Alexandria, not the same as Clement of Rome, but Clement of Alexandria picked this up and applied that same methodology to the New Testament. Clement had a seminary of sorts there in Alexandria, and in that seminary, Origen was trained and later became the president of that seminary. And it was Origen who adopted those allegorizing views and spread them throughout the, the world who uh, had such an impact on preaching that for 1,000 years 
allegory became the method for men to preach. Now, this is as far as the extant messages that we have are concerned. We don't know what was going on out in the boonies where nobody served, uh, saved the messages of the little preacher out here in the woods somewhere and the little preacher over there who was not significant in the eyes of, of the uh, academes of the day. Uh, probably there was still some good preaching going on out there that was very much like the apostolic preaching. But as far as the extant material that we have goes, preaching went downhill uh, about the third uh, or fourth century and it stayed that way up until the Reformation. Even added to that were what the scholastics did to preaching. Taking the Aristotelian views that they adopted and applying them to preaching, they soon began to chop everything into little pieces. There was one and there was A under that and there was small one under that and there was small A under that and then there was A, uh, one in, a in parenthesis and then under that uh, one in parenthesis, and then there was Aleph, and, and then there was Alpha, and so on and so on, until we had uh, the, any passage that they dealt with decimated, diced, and cut into pieces until you hardly recognized it anymore. And this became the dominant scholastic methodology. Look at Thomas Aquinas's outline sometimes, and you'll have a picture of what it was like. Well, the Reformation came along. And at last, preaching was freed from this allegorism. The, uh, the, the uh, great reformer Luther was trained in allegory. And at one point in his ministry, he said, I've got to shake free from this dominant method that has been ruining my ministry up to this point. And so he tried with a deliberate effort to get free from allegorizing. But he said, uh, it's very hard, and I've never really shaken myself completely free from it. And if you read his messages, sometimes they start out uh, very good, and then they go off into some allegorizing tendency uh, before they are completed. Calvin finally did shake free from it, and we had a different kind of methodology. The historical, uh, grammatical historical approach came to the fore. So that in the Reformation, Antioch, finally came into view after it had been submerged for so many centuries. Well, the reformers were good preachers. You had men in England, uh, and you like Latimer. You had uh, the men on the continent. You had a variety of people who preached powerfully because they preached the word of God for what it had to say and what the intention of those passages was. But they didn't write about preaching. They were too busy reforming the church too busy with their pastoral ministries, too busy with preaching itself. And as you learn what they thought about preaching, it's only from little snippets here and there in their writings or in their sermons or in their commentaries or someplace that you understand what their views on preaching were. So there were no, no treatises by these great preachers who brought preaching back to a more biblical standard. Following them came the Puritans. And the Puritans, while they adopted the teaching of the Reformers, went back to the scholasticism of the Roman Catholics. And that set us back generations. In fact, some of these Puritan preachers, if you look at uh, those who were in New England, 
uh, preached all day long sermons. They took time out for lunch between points. They had prayer meetings sometimes between points. But they preached all day long sometimes. Now that's maybe the extreme. But you can still find many of them who had 34thly in their applications or 56thly in their uses or improvements on the text, as they call them, uh, not improving the passage, but improving the individual, but the phrase was improving on the text. And <clears throat> these men who adopted the methodology of the scholastics, but who preached the teaching of the reformers, were our heirs. Uh, we are the heirs, our, our progenitors, we are the heirs to those men and their methods. And that's why today we have so many problems. The Puritan sermons varied, of course, but if you want to just kind of sum them up, there were fundamentally two sections to a Puritan sermon. There was the, what they called the gathering of the doctrines. They would go through a passage until they came upon some word, let's say, like uh, justification. Then you'd get a whole theological discourse on the subject of justification. Then they continue on and they come to another uh, concept or word or whatever uh, triggered their thinking along those lines that may have to do with sanctification. Then you get a theological discourse on sanctification. Then perhaps they continue on and they get to glorification and you get a theological discourse on glorification. And then that first part of the, the sermon being completed in which the doctrines were gathered and explained and explicated in great detail, then that would be followed by the second part of the sermon, the improvement on the text, the use, or what we today call applications. And that's where you would get as many ways in which the preacher himself could think of uh, applying that text to his congregation, totally regard, disregarding what the Holy Spirit had in mind, totally disregarding what the intention of the passage originally was, the preacher's job was to sit in his study and think of as many uses, as many possible uh, applications as he could of those doctrines which he had gathered in the first part of the message. And we, of course, today are heirs to that approach. Not that we go fifthly, for, forty fifthly, or fifthly, fifty-four fourthly, <laughs> but uh, sometimes. Uh, having reduced that, we will think of two or three or maybe even one, if we're not very imaginative today, ways of applying that passage to our congregation. But you see, what happened was, in that approach, you took the scriptures, you tried to understand something out of the scriptures, and then it was you who decided how those scriptures and that teaching in those scriptures would be used according to your interests and what you would like to do with it. And that became a tacking on at the end of the message or a tacking on at the end of each of the points in the message of the application that you wanted to come up with. And that's what we have learned and have been taught over the years, as many of the homileticians have taught many of the homileticians to teach many of the homileticians down to our day. 
But if you look at that history of preaching, which went a little longer than five minutes, uh, nevertheless, if you look at that history of preaching, you will discover that rarely did anyone other than the Reformers go back to see how it was done in New Testament times. And that is what has been missing in the history of homiletics. We have not examined, adequately examined, the scriptures themselves to see how the Holy Spirit guided those men who preached, to see what it was that he thought was important and how to convey that to others. That's the need in the church today. That's the need everywhere to go back to the Word of God, not only for content, but also for the methodology necessary to convey the words of the Spirit in the way in which the Spirit would have them conveyed. And so I'm trying to urge you in your study to look not only for what the passage says, but what the passage was intended to do what its purpose or its telos, its end, might be. You know, if you go to a good seminary, you will be taught grammatical, historical analysis of the preaching portion. I like to call the text, as it's usually called, preaching portion, because nobody uses that phrase, pre preaching portion, and you don't have to scrape off any of the, uh, the ideas that have uh, accumulated around that word, uh, such as have accumulated around the word text. So preaching portion, I think, identifies what I'm getting, trying to get across, and I'll use that frequently as the, what is ordinarily called a text. The grammatical historical understanding of a text is important. As I've already pointed out, that was the Antiochian approach. That was the approach of the reformers. Uh, it was the idea, let's get back to see what the passage actually says. When you study the grammar in a passage, it will keep you from going astray. And you need to get your Greek, you need to get your Hebrew, you need to understand, if you're going to preach well, what it was that was said in those passages and how it was said and precisely what it means. Otherwise, you're going to go astray even when you don't want to. So the grammatical side is very important. I'll never forget going to a prophecy conference back in the 40s. And uh, that tells you again a little bit about uh, how ancient I am. Uh, going back to a conference in the 40s in which a very noted man of the day who is now dead was deeply embarrassed because in working with 2 Thessalonians 1 in trying to present his view, he was saying, it says, rest with us, rest with us. And he was pushing the fact that there was a verb there encouraging us to rest. When a number of people got to their feet and they said, no, that's not a verb, even though the King James uh, reading might uh, allow you to read it as a verb, the original Greek makes that word rest a noun. And it's saying you will receive rest with us when Jesus Christ returns in flaming fire and not seven years before, as they were pointing out, and he was defending. Well. Uh, he got very embarrassed. He turned red, he turned green, he turned purple, he turned plaid, ran up the aisle and stormed out of the building. But that was all because he did not have the proper grammatical understanding of that passage. The historical understanding of a passage is very important too. 
We might misunderstand if we didn't understand how the word was used in a period uh, in which we are in the period in which we are are studying, or what kinds of customs the people were involved in. Grammatical historical analysis is critical. If you went to a good seminary, that's what you would learn. Those who go to a little better than a good seminary also learn that there is such a thing as a literary and grammatical analysis, a literary and rhetorical analysis of a passage. Not all material comes in the same form in the Bible. You have narrative, you have parable, you have gospel, you have apocalyptic, you have poetry, and on and on and on. There are various genres of materials in the Bible. And each has to be dealt with according to its own canons and its own rules. It, you don't deal with a proverb the same way that you deal with a narrative. If you're looking at the whole uh, scope of the story of Elijah and the prophet of Baal, then you see that though that story runs over two chapters. But if you're dealing with a proverb, it's only two lines. And so you've got to translate out of the form in which the material comes into a preaching format. And when you translate out of a narrative, which is strung out over two chapters, it's very different from into a preaching format. It's very different from translating out of a proverb into which much has been compacted very tightly uh, so as to uh, r retain it in a form you can carry with you and make that portable truth. When you look at one, you realize that uh, you have material that is kind of like uh, soft candy. Uh, you take one of these chocolate pieces with a lot of uh, cherry juice in it and then a cherry itself in the center and you pop it in your mouth and you chomp down on that and there's a burst of flavor and it's wonderful, and, but it's gone like that. That's the narrative. It's easy to move through and you, you run through quickly. But when you come to a proverb, it's like, hot, high, it's like hard candy. Uh, you've got to, to suck everything that's in it out of it. You've got to kind of turn it around with your tongue and, and chew just a little bit on one edge, being careful not to bust a filling, and uh, suck a little more on another side and suck a little more on the other side until all that truth that has been compacted into that one small proverb is extricated from it. You remember how the Apostle Paul dealt with the proverb of uh, not muzzling the ox. He said, was he talking about oxen? Of course not. Wait a minute, Paul. He was talking about oxen. But what Paul meant was, no, not primarily or exclusively was he talking about oxen. He was giving a principle. And he was giving a principle that had broad applications, that had many applications to it. But the principle was, was certainly a tight and fixed one that was easily remembered because it was attached to a figure of speech uh, and a picture that could be carried in your mind, not muzzling the ox as it treads out the grain. I always quote that proverb on Thanksgiving when I'm carving the turkey. But uh, this, this idea of genre of literature is important in analyzing a passage. But also, there's the importance of rhetorical material. Uh, rhetoric does have its place. There's a biblical rhetoric that needs to be understood. When Jesus said, that you're to cut off your right hand and, and uh, throw it away from you, pluck out your right eye, cut off your right foot. Uh, he wasn't talking literally. He didn't mean to maim the body. Why did he use that rhetorical device? 
Well, it was exaggeration of a sort that became so memorable you would never forget once having heard it. It, it, it conveyed the truth to you throughout the days to come. He could have easily said didactically, uh, love me more than you love other people and be sure that you don't, uh, uh, that, that you uh, hate, uh, uh, that, you, that, that you don't love me less. But instead of that, he said, uh, you are to hate father, mother, brother, sister yourself. Again, using exaggeration. He didn't want us to hate any more than he wanted us to cut off the right hand or the right foot. But what he was saying was that this is something you have to understand, this principle, that you've got to love me more. You've got to get rid of the right hand if it's what offends you, if it's what leads you into sin, whatever it is that, that leads you into sin, get rid of it in your life. And so he taught things in exaggerated terms. Hyperbole is a very important way uh, in which to preach. Uh, it, it's a critical thing for preachers to learn because when they do, then they can speak vividly in ways that their congregation can carry with them during the week. But to just say, love me more than you love everybody else, that doesn't stick. It's not memorable like the exaggerated form is. But then if you went to the best seminary of all, you probably would be taught not only historical, grammatical, rhetorical, and literary analysis, you'd be taught systematic and biblical theological analysis of the preaching portion. Systematic theology is so important, even though it's, it's running a second, uh, in second place to biblical theology today, uh, it, it is extremely important. Because when a man preaches from John, and he says, uh, from that text, God will give you anything that you want. There are passages that talk that way in the Gospel of John. He has to keep in mind what James says about prayer as well. James says, sure, you'll get what you want if you ask. And if you ask not to consume it on your own desires. And if you ask as a, a fervent, righteous man. And uh, if you ask in faith, nothing doubting. Not that you have to bring all of that into every message every time when you preach from John, but you've got to keep it in the back of your head when you're preaching from John so that you preach in such a way that when you get over to James, you don't contradict what you said when you were preaching from John. So a systematic understanding of the Scriptures, bringing all that the Word of God has to say on a given subject is very important to our analysis of a passage. The passage uh, is, is there for a purpose, and it is there... Uh, to achieve that purpose, and so it doesn't always say everything that is necessary to be said about a subject, and sometimes we forget that. But then there's the biblical theological analysis of the preaching portion in which you may want to make sure that your message is not a message that would be acceptable in a Unitarian church or in a synagogue. It is distinctively Christian. What you are preaching is Jesus Christ and how he has to do with the subject at hand. We don't preach Elijah, we preach the way God blessed Elijah, the way God acted through Elijah. Elijah was a great man and we won't forget that fact. And he had faith and he did works for the Lord. But it was the Lord who made Elijah what he was. And so we don't preach moralistically. We preach Jesus Christ at work in human beings and what he has done for us. And so all these things will be taught to you in analyzing a passage, grammatical, historical, literary, rhetorical, systematic, biblical, theological analysis of a passage. But usually, 
Too often, anyway, that's where the analysis ends. And if you do that work, you will come up with you will come up with meaning, what the passage means. And that's very important to know what the passage means. But you know, you can go around telling everybody what the passage means and never get it involved in people's lives. Never get people changed as a result of telling them the meaning. They may be able to write it down in their, their Bible margins or a little notebook that they carry and then shove that on the shelf, but it never gets into their lives. It never does anything to transform them because all they're interested in is the academic aspect of it, the meaning of the passage. There is another analytical element that must be stressed, and that's telos, the telic analysis of the passage. What was its intention? What did the Holy Spirit have in mind? Why did he give this? How did he wish people to be different as a result of having heard someone preach from this passage or having read the passage? What did the Holy Spirit want to do to people through this passage of Scripture? How should they walk out of this congregation different from the way they walked in, or at least intending to be different as they go out and live what they have heard? If you don't have the telic analysis as well, then you have lost the main thrust of that passage. None of the other things should be eliminated. All of them are essential. Without them, you'll never reach the telos of the passage. Without them, you'll never know what its purpose is. Very important to stress the Greek, the Hebrew, the systematic, the biblical, theological, the rhetorical and literary sides of this analytic analysis of the preaching portion, because those are what will give you the telos or the purpose of the Holy Spirit in presenting this message to you. But you see, unless you have in your mind, as you're doing those analyses, unless you have in your mind, I wonder what the Holy Spirit is up to in this passage. Why does he give this? You will miss it. And too often a message is nothing more than a recital of what a person has done in his study the things that he has gleaned from the various commentaries and books that he has read, patched together into some kind of a, uh, a, a whole and presented to a congregation as facts, but not facts that change living. And so you don't tack your own application on. When you preach a message from the telic viewpoint, the whole message is application. And I'm going to try to demonstrate that over the next two days, how the whole message can bring impact from beginning to end, from the very title of that message to the conclusion itself. That's what a message ought to be. It ought to be something that comes from God, delivered for the reasons that God gave it, and used by the preacher in that form. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why is it that so many people have been converted through the Gospel of John? John 1.12, John 3.16, John 3.36, John 14.1 following. Why is it so many people have been converted through the Gospel of John? Well, that was the purpose of the book. These things are written 
that you may believe, and that through believing you might have life through his name. God uses the scriptures for the purposes for which he gave them. That's the impact, I hope, that you will go away with as you leave these three lectures. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We pray that we may treat it not in a way that dishonors the Lord Jesus Christ or insults the Holy Spirit who gave us a passage for his own purposes. Keep us from trying to use the scriptures and thereby abuse them. Let us learn what use the Holy Spirit had in mind and use them his way. May we learn to sidle up alongside of the scriptures, glean not only the facts and the meaning, but also the intention. May we use the scriptures with power for those purposes we ask for, our, for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ in his name. Amen.